just hanging out at the South Bend Duck Pond with my friend Steve here. Howdy. Steve, how often do you come to the South Bend Duck Pond? Uh, uh, this is my second time here, but I run past it very frequently. Um, I feel like for bird parks, there's this unusual relationship between like the attraction and like, the reliance on how these birds expect food from us, but then also like this anxiety, like if they get too close to me, they're gonna bite my leg hair. <laughs> That's just something I feel. <laughs> so there's a, there's a beautiful chain link fence surrounding mm -hmm. the duck pond, mm -hmm. so they don't get out and bite kids all the time, I think? Hopefully, yeah. But you're saying people tend to sometimes just pull their cars up to the side of the and just chuck, chuck bread from their car windows. I've seen that, I've seen that. I feel like, you know, that's, that's America right there. You know, the convenience and the splendor all <laughs> collapsed into one space. Yeah. The fountain is nice. Yeah. If you can hear it. Um, so, Steve Lemke, as a good friend of mine from college. A little backstory to why I'm interviewing him here. Um, Steve, you, you're from St. Cloud originally in Minnesota. And what, what made you come here to South Bend, Indiana? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, well, um, I'm an artist, visual artist. I work in a variety of media. I consider myself a sculptor. Um, lo and behold, I had this incredible opportunity to start a Masters of Fine Arts in Sculpture program at the University of Notre Dame here in South Bend, Indiana. And I took it, yeah. Yeah. So I moved. <laughs> so you came from a, a working artist studio. Mm -hmm. What's that been like coming from like, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like as a composer, I'm working as a composer, but if like someone in my situation wanted to go to study again at grad school, like we're 30 and 31 years old and uh, is it tough to get back into school mindset right. for you or right well first of all I'm 21 plus 10 obviously <laughs> but um, I'd always made it this goal that I wanted to pursue some sort of studies on a master's level but yeah like I you like we've been out of school for some time <laughs> and so just like things have changed like I consider myself to like be up on like what's hip or like what in terms of technology right and the way that you work as a student has has changed since we were around like iPhones were not a thing email is still a thing but the whole way that that's run is very different hmm. um, oh so well just uh, communications and scheduling and the idea that that's all online and could change at any minute whereas before you know, that's all set because there's like a printed book <laughs> and there's yeah. nothing that can change, you know. So it's been interesting because, you know, I work in a creative field. Um, artists aren't necessarily known for being organized, but there is like a level of organization, I guess discipline that's expected that I've been enjoying, but it's been a very different vibe. Yeah, different vibe. I'm really lucky to be in the program that I am in. Essentially half of my time in the program is structured so as to be my own studio work and then I'm evaluated on that 
and then the other half is would look like more like traditional academic studies, art history classes, that kind of thing. So thinking about like, uh, well, we we yeah, last night we kind of had a a good talk about like life goals and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. And you're you're very like organized, future planner kind of guy in general, compared relative thank, to me. Thank you for saying we'll say. that. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, try to be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think, for people who find it hard to plan ahead, like, three to five years even, maybe one year in their future, uh, I don't know, do you have advice on, like, artist careers? Uh, yeah, well... I mean, first of all, like, you know, this is how it all worked out for me, and I did have a plan, but it, you know, obviously it changed several times, like, you know, the, right after you and I graduated, Charlie, like, we both did a lot of traveling. Um, for me, that was to kind of discern if this was going to be my true vocation or not. I decided that it was, but I, I took time off to really deeply consider that. But then it was my goal to immediately go into graduate school, and that did not happen. You know, it was several years before that finally um, the conditions, uh, my artwork, uh, my professional work, my personal work, or personal life, I should say, money, right, became right for me to do this. Um, and ultimately, I'm glad that that's how that shook out. Um, but I did continually have to not just make a plan, but like reevaluate that plan because other things got in the way. Yeah, um, I think and you we, had to apply for grad school like three times, three, times. three years in a row. Yeah. yeah. So some people in my program like they applied to like ten schools, which is really impressive to me. And I did not apply to that many this year, but over three years I applied to way more than ten. <laughs> and uh, I'm let me just say I'm very much looking forward to not doing school applications this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think yeah. it, it's less about that specific plan or the foresight, and it's more about focus or, you know, they say, like, quote-unquote grit, but just, like, a commitment to your goals whenever they finally materialize. Yeah. Um, but I think and that's important in creative work because, I mean, other people doing their own thing maybe not exactly in a creative field. Uh, it's a common perception that just, this just happens, right? That I roll out of bed and, oh, you know, I think I'll make some art today. But, like, no, like, it's a, it's a professional practice and you have to work toward it full-time, usually. Um, and that, that's a kind of focus, right, that I think a lot of people don't think that we have to do. It's a battle. It doesn't come easily, but some of that has to happen, right? Yeah. I mean, people make fun of art majors in college, <laughs> and you guys, I never visual arts, that, no. yeah. <laughs> visual arts majors, yeah, you guys were spending more time on your work than I think any, right. any other. Right, and also because uh, maybe this is true for music as well. Like in other, you know, like I don't know what, you know, physics or something. Like you are producing work, but it's invariably citing strongly and formatted in, in a way that strongly is referenced by something that other people have established. Whereas for visual art, on the, it's unusual on the undergraduate level that you are asked to generate something wholly new, like really create, right? Not only are you trying to prove that you have the technical abilities to make or 
for another practice may be right, but you're also judged on your ideas, right? And that, that's weird, right? That's, that's being asked to make something that's very personal. Yeah. And I think that's not found in other disciplines. It doesn't mean they're lesser, but it's just a different kind of part yeah. of that prism. The other weird thing is that from the time that we were students, uh, school has changed, right, in that there's a dramatically increased focus on getting a major or a degree that is very strictly hireable. So there's been an incredible decrease in the kinds of undergraduates that ultimately pursue a visual art or music degree because... You know, maybe they're really interested in it, but maybe they feel pressure or their parents don't want them to take on a degree that has that kind of risk in today's world. You know, we did our undergraduate degrees before 2008, right? Yeah. And graduated that year, we're a different generation. And now for these other students, you know, degrees where it's like business economics combined and all these different things means that there are way fewer students doing the art major. Which scares me, right? Like, yeah. we need those kind of people. We need someone that's going to take up music composition, right? Like, that's really important. So that's kind of worries me of what, what that means that we're going to become as a society. And I'm talking from a liberal arts perspective, right? Like, we went to small private schools where you would think there'd at least be some of that represented. And, and that's changing. It's changing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder, like, what... I, I kind of wonder, like, in the future what liberal arts schools will be like right i mean yeah the music program that i was in has dropped in numbers a lot and mm. kind of sounds like that's the case at all these private liberal arts schools yep. you know and that's relative to their cost and all these different things yeah uh, on the flip side like for me i have this incredible opportunity to assist with teaching at notre dame in my master's program so i do see the undergraduate students working in art but they're either using it typically as a minor or they're taking it as their prerequisite where I'm working with them and kind of starting from step one. Fortunately, they're awesome students to work with, but it's just a very different dynamic than working with someone who you know is going to consider this as a life path, strictly speaking. Yeah. So thinking on the creative side, do you find it intimidating to get to grad school and be told just kind of do your own thing create what you want (laughs) it's very intimidating it's very intimidating uh you know i think one of the big differences is we're trained to get like some kind of positive feedback right um to be told that what we're doing is correct or good or you're going to get an a or whatever and for me at least like that's that's changed right like in graduate work, I have to define that. I have to become the expert on my little slice of that topic. No one's going to tell me if that's correct or not. Instead, they're going to tell me if that's maybe compelling or if it's reflective of like you know true graduate study. But I have to be my own self advocate in that. Which you know, I'm from a small town, right? Like in Minnesota, I'm not. That's not like one of my strengths, you know. But that's like key to becoming like a a singular artist, probably. I, is my hope (laughs) yeah well i hope it goes well for you here steve thank you charlie thank you thanks for visiting yeah for sure
The Composer Quest Olympics are going along well. If you haven't heard the first episode of the tour, you should go back and listen. But basically, the Olympics are a way for composers to participate in fun composing challenges. And for our second composing challenge, I paired up all the participants, and with their partner, they had to do the musical version of ping pong. The composers sent one note back and forth until they had some sort of composition, and this challenge I thought would be kind of a weird one for people to do, but I was excited to hear the results. And now let's listen to Leona Ryder talk about her experience working with Melissa Bergstrom. So the table tennis event um, was a challenge for me. I've never composed with another person before. It really uh, motivated me in a weird way. Uh, My partner was Melissa Bergstrom, and she and I emailed back and forth. We set up some parameters for the beginning, like she suggested unaccompanied flute for our instrumentation, and I suggested let's try like a minor key. And I think the whole mood of our piece from the beginning was something um, to represent the season changing. I thought it, making it sound sort of fallish would be a good a good sort of setting for it. So after we got our initial parameters out of the way, uh, we just started emailing notes back and forth to each other. And it was kind of this guessing game, like... Is she thinking of where she wanted the line to go? And should I play into that or should I try to mess up her plans, right? So with each note, we're <laughs> we're sort of getting like more and more wacky in this key. I mean, I found it incredibly entertaining. One of my favorite pieces from the other competitors was the table tennis for two trumpets. Uh, That sounded like it was a lot of fun to make, and it was just an absolute joy to listen to. Table Tennis for Two Trumpets was completely improvised by Brian and Kate Schumann. You might remember Brian from the episode Thing Week with Brian Schumann. Now let's listen to Danny Blackwell talk about his table tennis experience with Diana Salier. Well, the table tennis challenge was really fun. I was working with Diana, and I'm not so great with technology, so I suggested kind of a lo-fi random approach, and I wanted to do something a bit avant-garde. I thought that was more, it lent itself well to this kind of challenge and I just sang a a long note and it wavered and I said, you know, I like the idea of, you know, when is a note not a note? The idea that, you know, 
when is one note become another note if it waves between notes or if it's like you know microtones anyway so I did a wavery note she responded first contact about uh, Peru and Bolivia, I think. No. Anyway, a, a border town. First contact with indigenous tribes and uh, one of the dudes whistled, so I stole that as my second note, uh, which happened to be an octave above the note I'd been singing. And in one of the recordings, uh, a a horn beeped in the distance and I sang the beep and I sent that to Diana and I said uh, use the, the horn beeping rather than me singing the horn beep if that makes any sense If you want to hear all these table tennis submissions go to composerquest.bandcamp.com in the next Olympic update, you'll get to hear what people did for the weightlifting event, which was to write a 30-second tuba solo. This call is now being recorded. Hello? Hey, Charlie. How you doing? Hey, Swingy. I am doing well. Good, good. Where just, are you? I'm just leaving South Bend, Indiana. Hung out with Steve Lemke. Nice. How's Steve doing? I haven't seen him in years. Uh, he's doing well. He just started his first year at Notre Dame in the sculpture program. He, he's liking it there. Hmm. And it sounds like just he's just surrounded by all these super intelligent people. It's kind of a blowing his mind a little bit. That's really cool. Um, uh, maybe you've heard the, the phrase, idiom, phrase, whatever it is. Um, you are the average of like the five people you, you, know, you spend time with. Uh, like the average of your five friends. Oh, huh. Have you ever heard that? Heard like, that. No. Yeah, kind of a, so if he's among really smart people, I mean, that's a good place to be, right? It raises up your average. Yeah. I've never been super compelled to go to grad school. You know, it's a little bit of a prideful thing, like, well, I'm already doing this music composition stuff, so why do I need to go someplace to learn stuff that I could learn on my own? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, talking to Steve, like, there's so much that you don't know you don't know, and it kind of sounds like talking to Steve is, it seems like he's learning things from all different perspectives, things you couldn't really think of just by working on your own. And that's kind of like the advantage of grad school. That's really cool. But and it's also a, a space uh, you're consistently in where you're among like-minded people, uh, receiving guidance and 
you know, really honing your voice or your craft. Uh, I mean, yeah, all that adds up to a, a really positive experience. Yeah. Nice. How about you? Have you thought about going back to school ever? Um, that thought comes by here or there. I feel like I've I've got much more to do. Um, I always kind of thought about grad school as something that, like, I, I feel like I have to be prepared for it to some extent. I guess uh, when I went through college and all that, uh, I, I've been trying to, like, since then and through that time, I've been trying to, like, kind of come to an understanding of, like, my voice or my attributes, my qualities, my personality. You know what I mean? That I don't want to go to grad school to find a path. I'm trying to, like, find, you know, what would I want to study? You know, very clearly. I'm not sure what that would be quite yet, but I, I but I'm a student of life in general. So I think one should always be learning. That's what I try to do, at least. You know. Yeah. So grad school or not, you know, I'll be learning at least. What what kind of stuff do you do to keep yourself like motivated to learn? Because I know personally, it's like easy to get stuck in the rut of using the same software. Um, you know, thinking the same way about projects, that kind of thing. For me, I, I read a read a lot, and I listen to podcasts. I don't, yeah, just kind of like for me, it's yeah. just like oh, I want to learn. It's just I want, I want to soak up information. So it kind of comes naturally to me. But I think it's a, I think it's a human quality at least. Maybe I'm kind of on the kind of one side on the bell curve. Yeah. So, yeah, the thing about learning is, like, I guess what I would say for motivation is that like, when you learn something, it gives you power. It gives you capabilities. It opens up opportunities. The more you know, the more power you have, right? You know, the, the more you can, the more agency you have, the more you can understand things and put the puzzle together. So learning is only for your benefit, right? It's not some sort of navel-gazing. I mean, just like with all... All learning, all understanding must, like, have an element of practice or, you know, putting that into action, right? It's, uh, it's, yeah, I guess it's kind of tapping into where can this take me? When I learn this, where where can this take me, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's really, I mean, like, some people would say there's a downside to learning only in that, you find out stuff you don't want to know, and some people want to be blissfully ignorant, maybe. But I, I understand that, right? Like, because yeah, with knowledge, with learning, with awareness, comes the responsibility, right? Like, sometimes you have to act on what you learn, and sometimes what you learn is really difficult. Um, I, this this reminds me of a a comic I saw. It, it was like one of those. I don't know if it was like the New Yorker or something like that. It was just one of those newspaper kind of comic things. Uh, and it was so as the image was, I think like two people or something, and then like they're like in front of this wall, and the wall had some sort of like drawn on image on it, and it looked kind of nice. It was like like a field or something, flowers. And then there's this large, tall ladder that reached way above the the wall. 
until I, you see someone looking just above the wall and beyond the wall. And beyond the wall is, like, destruction or fire, like, chaos. And, like, so this ladder is uh, representing learning and knowledge, right? So at the base level, everything kind of looks nice, and then you start learning more, and, like, it looks terrible, it looks destructive. And But then if you go up higher on the ladder, uh, then you get above the clouds, and it's beautiful again. It was, like, a really nice illustration of, like, yeah, sometimes, you know, the more you know, the more bad stuff you begin to understand you, that you open your awareness to that but then there is a higher quality beyond that too that comes with more and more learning too oh that's cool I always kind of think of that with like science and religion and like when people are unwilling to accept like evolution and that kind of thing mm. it's kind of like you know the more you you realize about this universe, like, the more beautiful it is. Like, regardless of whether or not there's God, like, you just have to, I don't know, it basically seems miraculous that we're here at all. But... Well, there certainly is a God, Charlie, and that God is inside you, in all of us. Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I didn't know we were gonna go go all the way with this conversation. From no, I've been I've been reading a lot of Joseph Campbell recently, and he talks about comparative oh. mythologies. And so, yeah, uh, it's something I just read in the Power of Myth, right? That the God is in all of us. Uh, we have the the power to kind of create our own realities, our own consciousness, our own experience, and yeah, the that that power is inside us. Is this Joseph Campbell who did the whole like like the story myth cycle? Thing? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh so Joseph Campbell's first uh major literary works uh was the uh Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he talks about uh well he compares all these mythologies uh and then he finds that they have more similarities than dissimilarities. They all have similar elements of uh, what he coined uh, the hero's journey, that he he codified uh, these stages that the hero goes through, from like being called upon the quest to having to go through the belly of the whale and so forth. And so for him, he, by comparing all these mythologies, you find this universal human connection in these stories, and that like these stories of the hero are stories for us, for the individual, for us to learn from, uh, that we too can participate in the heroic journey, because that will take us out of our suffering, out of our current place, into a higher realm of consciousness. Hmm. So where are you on your hero's journey? I know you uh, just have been traveling around a lot, and... Now you've returned to Minnesota. Like, we missed each other by one day, basically. Yeah, we did, which is so, unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, where am I on my hero's journey? Uh, I don't know. Um, it's a, That's a loaded, loaded question. I would love to answer, but it's a long answer. But uh, to put it succinctly, <laughs> um, I guess I'm choosing to accept 
the journey day after day, you know, the practice of acceptance. And so, and I think there's levels of micro and macro where, like, the hero's journey is in, like, a small scale within, like, a day or an experience or over the course of a year or over the course of a lifetime that these these particular challenges occur and reoccur. And so, yeah, I think we'll experience different parts over and over, like going into the abyss, going into the belly of the whale, you know, going into uncertainty and trusting one's own path. That's a good way to look at it. Because, yeah, I think a lot of people think, like, I'm going on this journey, this hero's journey, and it's my entire life. And I'm Mm -hmm. gradually building up by going to school, then I finally get a career, and then, like, maybe go through struggles in life to get there. But then once you get to that point, then you're, like, golden. Life's going to be great when you return home and you're retired. Um, Mm. And maybe, like, you kind of need that goal to, like, feel like your life has meaning. But at the same time, I kind of like what you're saying about, like, think of it on a smaller scale with all your life struggles. Yeah. uh, From day to day, we are beckoned by the journey to overcome challenges, right? Uh, that, like, the, the demons and the monsters of these myths, they might not be external realities. They could be, they're, they're most likely definitely internal realities. What are the demons and the monsters inside? What are we dealing with? And uh, how can we overcome them, you know, to be more in touch with our virtues, right, and not succumb to the demons inside? Yeah. Well, I didn't think I'd drop so much uh, myth all over this, but uh, I'm pleased to. Thanks for for inquiring. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I I knew we'd get there at some point. I just didn't know it would be episode two. Go (laughs) off the philosophical cliff. For uh, listeners, uh, Charlie and I have definitely enjoyed many philosophy uh, conversations uh, over the years, so... Uh, usually, usually we take some time to get there, but sometimes we just jump right into it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, Kelly. Uh, yeah. Good luck with your trip. Where are you going next? Well, right now I am driving to Ryan Ruff Smith's house in Cincinnati. Nice. And that's going to be a lot of fun, I think, because. I interviewed Ryan in episode two, and I haven't really checked in with him about his music since then. And that was like three and a half years ago. So he's been at grad school for creative writing, and I I think he maybe hasn't been doing as much songwriting. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see, like, why why maybe he stopped songwriting uh, just to focus on creative writing, and I'm sure he'll have some interesting tips on writing in general, so... I, I hope you didn't tell him you're showing up and you're just going to surprise him. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's virtually that, because I forget to check in with people on this tour. Um, <laughs> and then I'm like, hey, oh, by the way, does this work on this day? Hopefully. 
Because that's when I'm coming. <laughs> Well, that's a nice way to start the interview, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, Ryan, it's awesome to have you back on Composer Quest. Thanks, Charlie. It's great to be back. Yeah. It's been three and a half years since your episode. Wow. Yeah. Episode number two. <laughs> cool. And this is the first time you've touched your guitar in how long? Uh, several months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, tell me what, what you've been up to, um, other than touching your guitar. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, before I just touched my guitar, uh, I've been spending the last four years really focusing on writing um, prose fiction and a little nonfiction, but mostly, um, mostly short stories. Uh, so, I went and got an MFA at the University of Florida in Gainesville. That took three years, and I'm one year into a PhD program now at the University of Cincinnati. Yeah. I think when when I first interviewed you, you were back from Florida for a visit in Minnesota. Okay, yeah. So, so. that was probably during winter break, my first year or something like mm -hmm. that. Okay, cool. Yeah, and it was fun listening back to that interview today in the car. Because, yeah, you were definitely at the point where I think I asked you a question about, like, do you consider yourself more a uh, songwriter or creative fiction writer oh, yeah. and at that point you had said songwriter yeah that's yeah that's what you were up to but now you've had years under your belt um how are you feeling about like your yourself as a creative writer i i guess uh uh better if that's, if that's what i said three and a half <laughs> years ago that's good um but uh yeah the unfortunately the the songwriting has been completely neglected so i feel not at all confident about that being something that i do anymore uh because Strictly speaking, it, it hasn't been for a couple of years now. Hmm. Yeah. So was there ever a feeling of, like, you're sick of songwriting and wanted to just move on? Or just priorities or something? Yeah, I think it was it was a lot more gradual than that. And it was just uh, it was more about putting focus on, on writing in a way that was just started to take up all my time and, you know, kind of my mental space as well as, you know, hours in a day and... I think, too, I, was, I started getting some of the things out of it that I would go to songwriting for, you know, go to songwriting for uh, a way to relax or a way to process things, you know, um, and that's something that I, I think I'm better able to do through, through writing prose now that I'm, you know, got a little better feel for the craft of it, so it's something that I can get rewards from that, that, that maybe weren't coming when that was still a pretty new language for me. Yeah. So, like, how much of your uh, fiction writing would you say is like cathartic for you or in like processing the things or you know it's it's different I think I think most days it just feels frustrating and um and I think what I'm writing is stupid and bad and something that I'll probably have to throw away um and then the next day I'll look at it and there will be something about it that I think is kind of interesting um, so I'll keep going and then the next thing will seem stupid and bad until I look at it again. So it's, it's a little bit, I guess, uh, less immediately rewarding than writing a song is. But then, you know, after working on a story for a few months, it starts to make some sense. And it seems like, oh, there are some people here, uh, having thoughts that sound like 
things that people might think, and there's some level of complexity to it that's interesting to me. And then, you know, that's that's the point where it gets kind of fun. I really like revision, um, having, you know, some object that you can manipulate and make better rather than just uh, the terror of the blank page, just starting from scratch. Um, and I, I think that's, yeah, the you know, first draft stuff is, is, the, is the hardest thing for me. It's exciting because it's new, but it, there, there are so many options that it seems, it's really hard to know what your job is. Whereas when you go back and you're trying to shape something or add to something or subtract from something that already exists, um, it feels like a little bit more manageable task. Yeah. I think I pretty well avoided answering your question directly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all right. Uh, But it made me think in another direction, like, you're very good at telling stories and, like, crafting characters, and I almost feel like songs were maybe in a way, like, limiting you. I don't know how you feel about that. Like, there's only so many lyrics you can put in, and you could capture, like, the essence of a character, but, like in writing something like longer form, I don't know. Yeah, what do think? that makes sense. I think a, a, a song is a really uh, small container, and that's part of what has always appealed to me about it. And as, as a listener, part of what still appeals to me about it is um, seeing what someone can do with that, that little container. Um, but I think that sort of form certainly has its limitations too. And something um, like a short story or certainly a novel, you can explore ideas, uh, you know, people, uh, actions, thoughts that, that simply wouldn't fit into a song or if they did, it would be probably like a really tedious song. Um, so yeah, that, that makes sense. I think that's probably as good an explanation as I could come up with for, (laughs) for why that form started to appeal to me more and started to, uh, to fit better with what it was. I felt like I had to, for some reason say. Yeah. So when we last talked, you were working on a second EP. You had just put out your first EP, and the second one came out like shortly after we talked, and then I never really got to ask you about those songs. <laughs> right, so that's that's my new release. It came out, what, three years three. ago now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they're good. Thanks. I, yeah. They sometimes come back to me, like I'll get, state of nature always gets stuck in my head. <laughs> I'm curious, like, what sparked that song? So that song actually grew out of a misheard lyric. There's this Lamb Chop song. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this band called Lamb Chop. Oh, um, not the, I'm a not big the, fan of this show called Lamb Chop. <laughs> the, the play along. <laughs> um, that's great, too. Uh, I, have, I haven't revisited that in a long time. I'm not sure if it, if it would hold up. But there's this really weird band from Nashville uh, called Lamb Chop that's been making music for a really long time. And I think they're one of the few bands whose later work uh, is way better than their early work. Like, they just keep getting better. I think they're kind of like an old man band, and maybe that's why, like, he seems to have grown into himself, the, the songwriter. But there, there's a song uh, off their album, Ohio, called I'm Thinking of a Number Between One and Two. Uh, and there was this lyric that I misheard. I thought he was saying, I want to fight you like some beautiful boy. And I love that lyric. It was one of my favorite lyrics ever. I thought it was just really evocative and strange. Um, and for that reason, I really love that song until finally one day I looked up the lyrics and realized that just like, wasn't what he was saying at all. He was saying, I want to find you like some beautiful poem, which is okay. I mean, I think it's a pretty good line, but it's not yeah. fight you like some beautiful boy. So I thought, oh, that's a song that should exist. So that's kind of where that, that song came from. I'm in a state of nature with you. Everything we do is all right. We don't have to think about what. 
fight you like some beautiful boy Oh yeah, I'm gonna take you down that song like a personal song to you or uh yeah i think it is because yeah so it was it was a line that i'd always liked um and then uh i i met someone who's now my partner rl who the the line seemed to apply to um and so so then i liked the line even more and i thought there should be a song around it so that was kind of uh yeah i think probably the the last personal song that i've i've written not to say it will never happen again but uh, it was it was kind of like this high school moment where I had this occasion to like write a love song for a person and show it to them as part of like this whole weird courting thing. It felt very, I felt like I was like eighteen again. Yeah. Well, that that's interesting because um, the last guest. So we've been doing this question chain throughout the podcast. Mm. And, um, the last guest wanted to know what the first song you ever wrote was for somebody. Oh wow first song that I ever wrote for somebody. You know, I, I, I don't remember what it was called or how it went, but I do remember writing a song for my very first high school girlfriend. That was probably just like a really sappy love song and might still exist in a notebook somewhere in my parents' house, (laughs) (laughs) but it would just be chords and words and I'd have no idea what the melody is. So it's for all lost for all purposes lost. Yeah. Huh? Well, obviously, like, you grew a lot since then. and I hope so. State of yeah. Nature. Yeah, State yeah. of Nature is a very cool song. It's not like, I don't know, I don't think of it as, like, a sappy love song in any way, but it's, but it's like, a very upbeat, like, happy, freeing, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think the, the song that I had in mind when I was writing it and then also when we recorded it is uh, the John Lennon song, Oh, Yoko. There's, there's something about that kind of, like, carefree, uh, just kind of, like, simple state of happiness that really appeals to me about that song. And I think, you know, that's a kind of why I imagine the song starting with, with harmonica, uh, you know, it's kind of a similar tempo and to kind of, kind of a similar feel, I think. I think they, they turned out pretty differently, but that was kind of the mood that I felt like I was in at that time and thought it'd be fun to try to write a song that captured a similar one. I'm in a state of nature Waited all my life to find someone to occupy a space that's I guess since you already answered the uh, question chain, right? From Sam, that was from Sam Baggett. Oh, cool. Uh, what do you want to hear answered from the next guest? Um, I would like to know what is the song that, if you could get away with plagiarizing and no one would ever know, you would want to claim as your own. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> since That's... I just confessed to to having uh, tried to rip off the vibe of a John Lennon song. Yeah. That's where my head's at. And the lyric misheard from... And the lyric mis... Yeah, so it was kind of a... you're basically just a fraud. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think... (laughs) 
I think all pop songs are kind of about other pop songs. I, I might not be the first person to say that, so I, I might be plagiarizing <laughs> even as I go. Or someone said all books are about other books. Or, you know, I think there is a degree to which uh, any art that is made in a form that is an existing form is kind of, uh, in a way, kind of a, a love letter to the form itself. And so, yeah, I, 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 uh, maybe, maybe it's not something you should do, but I often have other songs in mind when I'm writing songs. Uh, or have other stories in mind when I'm writing stories, um, and like like to think of um, of those things as something that could be in conversation with, yeah. with something that I really admire. I mean, we were just over dinner talking about Stranger Things, and yeah. that's like a, basically an ode to those like '80s '90s Spielberg movies. <laughs> Certainly, yeah, yeah, to the kind of the level of of pastiche, even, yeah, yeah. What kind of things have you? been learning as you've been doing creative writing that maybe like songwriters could take with them yeah I I was thinking about that uh knowing that we were going to have this conversation and and remembering that I think the first time we talked I remember talking about uh how with with songwriting one thing I really admire is um is is focus you know having a clear opening uh having you know some actual meaning to your song and kind of getting to the point and I think that that's uh, something that I really value in prose as well, something that can be really forthcoming and clear. Those are all things that I, I find really attractive to me. Beautiful writing is always really clear writing. Um, I think that like prose is a kind of a um, tool for making sense. Like It's a technology, and the thing that it is for is, is making sense. And I think beautiful writing is something that makes uh, a kind of beautiful sense. Um, so I think that's something that I brought with me from this particular vision of songwriting that was, you know, coming, kind of coming out of, um, I, I remember we talked about some songs by like Tom Waits and Bob Dylan, these songs that like had a really clear idea behind them. And it's really a, a songwriter, you know, trying to tell you something, not just evoking things with images, but someone that really has something to say. And it's probably filtered through, you know, um, this kind of distorted lens of a narrator, which like, you know, first person short stories are as well. Um, and one, one thing that one of my professors here at the University of Cincinnati, uh, Chris Batchelder, uh, talks about a lot is uh, whenever you have like a first person narration, there's the drama of event. There's like what happens in the book. Um, but you also have the drama of the telling, right? Because you have this person who's telling this story that they ha- have some weird compulsion to tell. So, you know, anytime you tell the story uh, in, in, in first person, especially first person retrospect, you're talking about something that happened in the past. Um, there, there's this this drama of narration where part of what's compelling about those stories is is trying to figure out what it is that the narrator is trying to gain through telling the story, what it is that they're trying to make sense of, and what it is that they're not quite prepared to own up to, or what they might be blind to as well. Um, he also says that that he thinks the term unreliable narrator is redundant because all narration is unreliable. You know, that's that's part of what stories are is is someone with a particular stake in something and a particular limited, very human point of view trying to tell the truth, you know? And I think that the, the difficulty of saying one true, clear thing can actually um, be really compelling in and of itself. Yeah. Oh, that's a really cool way to think of it because, yeah, you know, we learned about the unreliable narrator with Huck Finn in high school, and it's like that, that in and of itself is kind of mind-blowing, like once you start to realize that. But, but yeah, the idea that it's like, Every story told from that <laughs> that narration has, and I, I suppose it like just makes the story feel more genuine when you can kind of understand why this person is compelled to, or maybe it, maybe I don't know, maybe you try to 
kind of mask why they're trying yeah, to tell certainly. it till, till a certain point in the book or story. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember um, exactly which Bob Dylan song we talked about last time. It might have been One Too Many Mornings. Yeah. Um, but, so, but that song, I think, does it. I think a song like Don't Think Twice It's All Right is definitely a song that is about the drama of the telling to a certain degree. There's definitely some subtext there that's not that hard to get, right? Like, uh, he's saying, uh, like, don't think twice, all right. Like, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. No, seriously, I'm fine. But it takes, you know, like five verses for him to say that he's fine. So obviously, you know, you, you can kind of read between the lines and be like, okay, this guy is trying to minimize this and make everything okay. Uh, and he's kind of putting on this pose of nonchalance. But uh, this insistence of saying it over and over again kind of undermines that message. And I think that's where, like, the drama of a song like that comes from is someone saying something because they want it to be true. But the more they repeat it, the more you realize that they, they really have a, a need to say this thing. And, and I, I think that that can be really compelling. Yeah, that's cool. Hey, can you think of one of your songs where you've tried that? Um, uh, well, I had this song um, that we, I think, tried recording once with Spencer McGillicuddy, and it never ended up on anything. Uh, but it was called Somebody Else. And I'm trying to remember all the details of it. It was kind of a, like a slow, jazzy song. That it was kind of like this really sad relationship song about someone saying, I know how you feel about me because I feel the same way about somebody else. And like on the face of it, I think it seems like a very direct statement and kind of a tell-off and like kind of a cruel song. Um, but also I think there is some of that sort of like drama of narration, like who, who is this person who is, who is saying this to the person they're with? Uh, who is this person who um, like has this kind of... Uh, thing to say which isn't it just like isn't a very like nice or acceptable thing to say i think there's some kind of drama in the fact that a phrase like that is being stated at all you flatter me and tell me i'm the only one for you and i can tell you think it's true and i know just how you of this episode is a little bit of like thinking about going to school for either grad school or going to music school um what kind of things would you say to people who are on the edge of like should i go to grad school um what's the tipping point uh (laughs) yeah maybe if you can avoid it (laughs) just don't (laughs) um i mean i think it's something where 
I, I think the, I mean, so if, if you're talking about going for, for something in the arts, you know, something like creative writing, um, I think what, what it really buys you most of all is time and a community and a certain level of, of focus and commitment. Um, and I think, you know, most, most people who teach in creative writing programs would tell you this. There's only so much that you can learn in a classroom uh, about something that you have to perform in solitude. And that uh, a lot of professors have had have said that, you know, a creative writing program can't teach you anything about writing that you wouldn't eventually learn on your own. The hope is that you'll maybe learn it a little bit faster. Um, I mean, for me, I was, I was lucky enough to land in programs that had like teaching stipends attached to them. And so there, there was some funding. It wasn't, uh, it's certainly, I I think you don't want to go into debt for at least a writing degree. I don't know how it is in, in fields with the other arts, you know, maybe, um, for acting or something, there might be, uh, some possibility of gainful employment at the end, but it's definitely, it's not like law school or med school where you're making an investment in a future that is going to have monetary, you know, yeah. payoff for you. So, yeah, I mean, I think if it, if it feels like if it's definitely the thing that you want to do and you want to give yourself, you know, a real shot, if you kind of want to place, place a bet on your own work, uh, it's certainly been super valuable for me and, and, and I'm really glad I did it. But I'm also glad that I did it six years after I graduated from undergrad, which was really quite a long break. I wasn't the oldest person in my program, but I was up there. But I think if I had tried to make that commitment at a younger age, I think I just simply wouldn't have had the life experience um, or, you know, like the breadth of, you know, reading experience. I think I wouldn't have, um, I just wouldn't have known enough to to make good on it. So, um, and the the other thing too is uh, it's, it's an opportunity to be around people who are really doing it. So for me to be able to, you know, develop student-teacher relationships with people who uh, have published many, many books, uh, you know, was a chance to see what this life is actually like, what these people think about. That was really valuable for me to see. Yeah. That's interesting to hear about, like, that you felt like it was good that you had the break between undergrad and grad, because I've heard, like, both things, like... Like, you have to do it right away or you're never going to go back. Yeah, yeah. And I can see an argument for that, too. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, something like music, especially music performance, is probably totally different because it's based on these really concrete skills that you can rehearse um, and develop. And and with writing, there are are certainly skills that need to be uh, worked at and developed. There's a big craft element to it. Um, But ultimately, if you want to work in a form where, where the point is utterance you know you you need to have something to say too and I think yeah I was actually just uh looking through some old files the other day because I was looking for an example of a bad first draft to show the um undergraduate workshop that I'm teaching and I didn't end up showing them one of my stories uh mostly because they were too long for uh the, the amount of time I had in class but it was really interesting seeing what I was uh what I was trying to do you know when I was in my early 20s and uh yeah, it's. Uh, I, th- I think if I w- if I if if I wrote the stories I was trying to write, then with complete technical proficiency, they would still not be stories that needed to be told. <laughs> if that makes sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm always like curious with songwriting too. It's like how much of a like life experience do you need lived before like you have something to sing about or something to write about? Yeah. And I think that, I, mean, I think there's no like one answer for that either. I also went to school with people who read out of undergrad who, who had fascinating things to say. And of course, um, 
I, I think especially in, in pop music and even indie music, you, those tend to be very uh, uh, art forms that really favor youth. And there's something about, I think, uh, kind of the rawness of young experience that, that really correlates with um, with songwriting, especially, you know, with, you know, a genre like, like rock that has this real immediacy to it. Whereas a novel takes like 16 hours to read, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, there's nothing immediate about it at all. It's like, it's like being stuck in a, in a room with someone and, and, you know, listening to the longest story ever. Um, so, so you want to be sure that, uh, that it's a story that's going to last, you know, not just beyond those first three minutes of, of immediate fascination, but, um, that has, has some, real depth to it and that can continue to hold your interest yeah do you know like historically like some of the younger writers who have written like good good novels sure yeah oh and yeah that that certainly happens um well i mean so my thesis advisor at florida david lovett published his first book when he was maybe 22 (laughs) and it's amazing it's 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 wonderful and He's very, you know, very, very much had things to say. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's any one particular age at which everyone is ready. It, it really depends on the person. I do think in, in American publishing right now, there is a little bit of kind of a weird cult of youth where the books that get the most attention are usually by very young and often very attractive writers. And, and part of like kind of the selling point behind it is, isn't it amazing this person wrote this book and he's only 24, you know, and mm-hmm. uh like that in itself uh, being something that attracts someone to a text is something I'm suspicious of. Um, but again, it, it, it feels totally different when I'm listening to music or something like that. I think they're in that way really, really different forms. Mm-hmm. Well, if anything, I, I think the comparison would be to like classical composers. Uh, sure. It's kind of like mostly like older white men yeah yeah um well i mean there's like a lot of younger composers too but like the people who are are getting like big orchestra orchestral performances and stuff yeah that makes sense uh and yeah yeah i would i would love to see like even more diversity of like composers writing that style but yeah yeah i mean listeners of the show are generally the people who reach out to me are mostly guys <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so you know more power to the women composers out there yeah certainly yeah. <laughs> but i don't know where we were headed with this yeah I, I it makes sense though that uh you know like a a, a long form version of music something like a classical composition would be something that a composer would continue to improve at as, as they get older, you know, that it seems again to be kind of the opposite of the, the immediacy of, of pop music and maybe more analogous than to something, something like a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Ryan, uh, part of this tour is, uh, I've been challenged by my Kickstarter backers, um, to come up with like some new songs along on the road. Um, I've kind of had this idea to like collaborate with the people I've come to visit um so if you're up for it we could do some co-songwriting sure let's try it (laughs) it's it's only been three years so it shouldn't take long yeah well i feel like i'm in the same boat a little bit because i haven't i've been writing film music and that kind of thing but i haven't written full songs in a while so so we could try uh one of a few 
challenges. Let me pull up my list and you tell me what would be most interesting. Cool. So you've actually gotten some specific uh, I've got I've gotten some specific from... prompts. Uh and I think the one that would be the maybe the most sense based on our conversation is uh, Jacob Heller requested a song where the chorus has the same words but means something different each time. Mm. And I feel like you would be a good collaborator for that one. Yeah, yeah, that sounds up my alley. <laughs> so, yeah, should we just do this? And I'll keep it rolling. And if, if All right. we want to, we can always cut parts out and cool highlight sections where we have some sparks of inspiration. Yeah, Maybe. yeah. Do you remember what your guitar riff was? That That's what I was just wondering. I, I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Should we stop and listen? Yeah, would you mind? going to have a chorus that's the same every time it means something different every time it has to be like a pretty simple phrase you know something that would have kind of malleable yeah meaning and then whatever the verse is it'll totally change the inflection of it yeah what was the bob dylan song that uh one too many mornings i think that was the one that kept changing yeah uh i mean it's it's yeah something that i think you'll either believe this speaker thinks or not depending on the verse yeah it'd be fun if we could apply your um what we were talking about with the immediate or uh the event yeah yeah the the, drama of telling yeah Yeah. drama of telling yeah i mean like this kind of a uh cliche but something like it's all good you know could be said with absolute sincerity or uh, it could be, you know, a, just a denial of yeah, the opposite sentiment. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's all good. like the Red Hot Chili Peppers or something? <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> like maybe. Jason Mraz or... <laughs> yeah. It's uh, all so good. It's all good. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> this isn't the douchey song contest? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, um, hmm. A line that was coming to me maybe would be like, that's going to be a good day or something. Mm-hmm. Although it, there's so many songs that have something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The other songwriting challenge I got was from my friend JP. He said, listen to On the Road Again and write a song about how that makes you feel. (laughs) (laughs) Which 
that could lend itself to a song like starts out real excited about this sure. trip. Yeah. And then for some reason. What about something like, uh, like I've got miles ahead of me, like it could be real optimistic Ooh. or it could be real world weary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like that. And then, I mean, there could be the contrast with her somewhere in there. Like I've got miles ahead and miles behind. Mm -hmm. Towards the end, mm -hmm. maybe you realize like this person has this pattern of like leaving or something. Yeah, sure. So we've got to make the whole chorus something that'll be the same every time, but but different based on the context. Oh so yeah, that's right. We've got miles ahead of me, and would be another statement that paired with that could sound optimistic, pessimistic. Yeah. Or it could just say that twice. Yeah, that that would simplify things. <laughs> I've got miles ahead of me. got the end of the song figured out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it'd be good to have just like a, maybe just say it twice and it's a short chorus. Yeah. Maybe Oh, oh Lord? Is that too country? Oh Lord. <laughs> if you can pull it off, yeah. go for it. Oh. So <clears throat> what's going on with this story of this person? So, I mean, if it's going to mean something different every time, I think the structure is probably that each verse jumps forward in time. The chorus is the thing that keeps coming back at the end of it. It means something different tacked onto that verse. So we probably go from positive to negative rather than the other way around. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> that's just how it goes. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I'm thinking, so... On the road again, we've got this optimistic beginning of the trip, full tank of gas, beautiful day kind of thing going on. Mm hmm Maybe we try to get that down and then, then go from there. Sure. All right, so... so so what do you think? Do you think I'm good with that? Anything you want to change? Melody-wise? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. So we've yeah, got... Yeah, we can... Something like that? Yeah. Cool. We could... We'll probably end up, you know, changing it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, see what the words... Do <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is this too like um, Bob Seger to be like? Take a gas, the windows down. Doing nothing but covering ground. 
something like that. Yeah. Doing nothing. Uh, you could bring in another person like. Yeah, because we'll need them later. Someone. Or if I needed someone, I think that lyric exists. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so what's happening then in this first verse is it, is the person going towards the person or are they just. Hmm. Um, um, maybe it's that they think that metaphorically the two of them have miles ahead of them. How yeah. about the, how about they're yeah. in the car then, like um, for this verse? Um, Could it end in a way that still works to say, I've got miles ahead of me? Oh, instead of we? Yeah. Uh, Maybe she turns to him. Or... Yeah. And asks, yeah, yeah. do you need a break from driving? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've got miles ahead of me. It's like, just saying, like, I'm good to go. Yeah. Okay. So we just start off on the full, straight up literal. Yep. Then get metaphorical good. Then metaphorical bad. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, Maybe the passenger is starting to fall asleep and doesn't doesn't want to, but. um, Not enough on the passenger side. You say sorry. I could drive. It's all good, baby. <laughs> I'll take you there. <laughs> Cause I got miles ahead of me. I got miles ahead of me. We could maybe make that suck a little bit less, but it, it's coherent. Yeah, that, it that's makes sense. Pretty, yeah. yeah. So our narrator is. If our narrator's gonna say, it's all good, baby, I'll take you there. <laughs> this doesn't sound like you or me. Sitting <laughs> yeah, <somewhere>. yeah. <laughs> we're, but we're, we're writing a character. Yeah, that's... I feel like every song I've written is pretty much a character, you know? Especially when you're trying to sound like a song, you know, like speaking the language of other, mm-hmm. of other pop songs. Um, okay, so we've got the literal verse. Do we want a metaphorical positive verse, like... I've got miles ahead of me. Maybe he's coming to see her now. What if the story is that he's helping her move to another place? Ah, uh, yeah. That's what this road trip purpose is? Sure. And it could be a simple song. Like, Wouldn't matter where then, but... Yeah. <laughs> being a little literal, but... Uh, oh! Could we change one line to make it um, work that way? Sure. I, I'm sure we could. Doing nothing. Just change that to something else. The window's down On our way to your new home state (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't rhyme (laughs) Your new hometown? (laughs) Yeah I think we could have this be like First verse, the carefree state Second verse could be going To see this person Yeah Third verse could be leaving Yeah, we just kind of skipped ahead and this person is in another... Yeah. Coming back to see you again. Something, something. Your new friends. Mm-hmm. 
with me beside you. I was just thinking of a little bit of role reversal of like, in the first verse, the narrator's in the driver's seat of this mm. situation, and now she's, or whatever, mm -hmm. in her new home, and me beside you. I don't know. Just like Unless, before? Something like, like that? Yeah, and sure. With me beside you, just like before, or we could come back and change that if we need a better rhyme. Yeah. Um, How do we put in a turning point? This is the question of like yeah subtly or, or yeah I feel like if it's just the second half of the verse it has to be really subtle or else it would be like right so what's what's i've got miles ahead of me gonna mean this time um, oh right because i think we're not turning just yet right like it's yeah have one more verse maybe the narrator gets a texts along the way or something <laughs> um or it could just be like kind of expressing this feeling of like having a long way to go but being excited about getting there sure gonna drive into the night yeah um drive into the night gonna burn out my headlights <laughs> <laughs> um then I said, baby, it's all right. <laughs> Nothing's wrong. Everything's right. <laughs> Gonna drive into the night. Hold your picture in my mind. Are you going to be imagining getting there? Going to drive into the night, kill the engine, and kill the lights? Uh, except then what, what's I've got miles ahead of me then? Yeah. Like he's already gotten there. Gonna drive into the night. Gonna hold you oh so tight. Later, when I get there. When I get there. Which hasn't happened yet. I'm, Cause I've got miles ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could be like saying something like, remember to keep, to not turn off the light. Yeah. I mean, like, not. Or just that something stupid, more. Evocative about the experience of driving all of the lights on the road mm -hmm. in a sea of headlights or something, or blurring past the headlights. Yeah, in a blur of passing lights. Yeah, oh, I like Drive that. Drive into the night, uh, into a blur of passing out lights, but out beyond them. Your open door. And out beyond them, your open door. Sure, yeah. Cool. Sad sack verse and call it good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, let's see. So what if, like, I mean, the obvious thing to do would be, like, she breaks up with him, he drives home feeling sad for himself. What if, like, he's broken it off or it's, like, a mutual thing where he's at least trying to convince himself that he's, like, the one who did it, that he's glad? Like, you know, just so we have a little bit of, like, of that, like, a... Uh, drama of telling a little bit of the tension sure. where he's trying to make it sound like he's cool with it. Mm -hmm. um, what about just just like something expository, like almost empty, I'm heading home. Thought it was better to go it alone. You know it's funny, I'm feeling fine. Yeah. It was nothing but nothing at all. Maybe 
it could tie back to the first verse of like just covering ground. Yeah. Something about the double line, like on the road. Hmm. Nothing but nothing yeah. at all. Keep following the double line. Something. Now I'll just follow, or just need to follow the double line. Just gonna yeah. follow. Boom, song. One, two, ready, go. To recap, <laughs> <laughs> let's see, how long did this song take us? 
When did we start? It's like 11 now. Uh, let's see. So I think it took us about an hour. Cool. Not bad. That's, that's pretty good for <laughs> yeah. like a three verse song. Yeah. So Especially first time in three years. Yeah. It's, I've been spending one one year per verse on this song. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'd like to explain I'm that. sorry how you spent your last three years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish it was better. But this is what I've got. So I'm glad you made the drive out to Cincinnati. <laughs> Ah, well, Ryan, it's been awesome chatting with you here, and thanks for hosting me here in Cincinnati. Yeah, been a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. Yeah. And I think most people are creative in one way or the other. A lot of people feel like they have a book in them or they have a song in them or they have a TV show idea. And you can sit around and talk about that all you want. But until it is actually reality, it doesn't count. songs I half wrote but never quite finished and never finished recording or never even started recording and no one knows that those songs existed so it, it kind of doesn't count until you finish it and then put it out into the world now I'm not saying put crap out into the world but there comes a time when finishing and moving on I think is vital otherwise you're just holding on to all of these old works I think if you want to grow as any sort of creative person, you need to finish things. All right, so I'm here in Trenton, Ohio with Travis Langworthy. Hello, Charlie. Uh, and Travis has played a special role in my life. Uh, he is the founder, kind of co-founder, of the Spintune Songwriting Contest. Definitely co-founder. There are a lot of people involved. So. Yeah. So you had reached out to me, I don't even know what year it was, probably like 2010 or something like that. Somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah. Um, to participate in this songwriting competition and I thought it sounded kind of cool, and I'd never really had a... I'd never been in a judged songwriting competition before. <laughs> um, so there's... Yeah, it was really cool. And 
like, yeah, I guess you could describe like how the spin tunes challenge works. All right, well, spin tunes is a contest where me and a panel of judges will give a group of songwriters a songwriting challenge. The challenge can be topical, it can be technical, it can be both. You don't know what you're going to get till you sign up for it, and we just announce the first round's challenge. And uh, you get eight to ten days on average to write your song, record it, send it in to me, and we put it all up on an album for everybody to download and listen to for free. And then a panel of judges will go through and review and rank all the songs. Highest ones move on to the next round. Lower ones are eliminated. But we also encourage the people who are eliminated to keep writing and submitting songs to the contest because it isn't really about winning and spin tunes. The winner gets a t-shirt. So, yeah. I mean, if you're really hard up for a t-shirt, we're the contest for you, I guess. But <laughs> uh, it's more about just getting people out there, creating things, and also pushing them outside their comfort zone. Uh, initially, that wasn't something that I thought of as being one of the main focuses of spin tunes, but that over time, that has definitely become one of the themes and one, I think, the more important things about spin tunes is getting people to try new things they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, like a rap challenge, for, yeah. <laughs> which is very daunting for like most singer-songwriter types. Oh yeah, uh, I was not very popular when I first uh, decided to try to push that through, and I failed the first couple times. And then, luckily, luckily for me, I got Mike Lombardo to be one of the judges, and I knew he wanted a rap challenge too. So me and him kind of teamed up and pushed that challenge through, and yeah, yeah. people were not happy after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I found, like, I completed so many more songs than I would have if I hadn't had these deadlines and challenges. Yeah. Um, it was just a really cool experience. Yeah, it's great for people who uh, need a deadline to finish things because some people will just keep putting things off over and over again, and it's just something that eventually just never gets done if they don't have that deadline. But having a deadline and having to publicly commit uh, to the contest and to the other people in the contest because, you know, people compete to be a part of a community too. They, they, so you're committing not just to me to follow through with what you say you're going to do, but everybody else in the contest yeah they're looking forward to hearing your stuff yeah and i i should mention that this spin tunes contest kind of inspired me to do the composer quest quests oh. so like <laughs> yeah so the regular challenges i give to these composers are i try to make them equally like press people to do something new and yeah so that's cool. thanks I for the inspiration i didn't yeah. know that <laughs> yeah for sure well Spin Tunes was also inspired by other things. So, I mean, there was Masters of Song Fu, which is what I kind of followed mostly, but there's also Song Fight and Nurine. So it's it's good that people can, you know, see some of these other contests or other things people are doing and create something of their own like that that's getting other people. As long as you're getting people creating, that's a good thing. Yeah. And so... This year is going to be your final year as lead organizer of Spin Tunes. Yes. Um, but it's going to keep living on. Uh, yeah. It, it might be a little odd being called Spin Tunes because it'll still be named after me, but I will no longer be in charge. Yeah. But because you're Spin Town. Yeah. On I, Twitter and. Yeah, everything. I'm Spin or Spin Town everywhere online. So it's it's still going to be named after me, but it was really never my contest. It was always a community thing. Uh, it, it wasn't my idea. It was, you know, half dozen people's idea that all just came together and 
put me in charge of it because I was the only non-musician in the bunch. But yeah, so spin tunes will, will of course go on without me. I've, I've said that from the very beginning, if I ever got tired of running it or I just got too busy that, you know, it would still go on in some form with somebody else. So yeah. And I found out just now that out of the, I don't know how many hundred people have participated, I'm only the second one you've met in person. I think so, and I'm going to be really mad or dis, uh, like piss somebody off if I'm forgetting somebody, but I think you are the second spin tuner I've met in person. And I'm not even going to mention the other one just in case I am forgetting somebody. <laughs> <laughs> that way I can say, no, no, I was totally I was, talking about you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I'm going to end up meeting um, a couple more spin tuners on the road that I've never met in person. Tom Giarosso and Jenny Katz out in New England, so you'll get to hear from them yeah, later. Yeah, I'm really jealous because yeah, I would like to meet some more of the spin tuners out there. And uh, You even just got done staying with one, you said, the other day. Yep, so yep. Ryan. Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Ryan joined um, one one spin tune contest after I did, and we that was really fun, actually, because there were four of us in the same house. Um, the the people in the band Spencer McGillicuddy we all lived together uh, so we were like inspiring each other listening to each other's songs um, <laughs> it was awesome yeah that, that was a fun contest it, it was weird for everybody else too because after the first round we knew they were all the same like band <laughs> it's like so wait, are they all writing their songs together or are they doing it individually <laughs> we don't know but we like the music so we don't care <laughs> yeah well and those guys are such good songwriters too they I think Mitchell ended up winning that one. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, anyways, it's, yeah, it's been fun meeting up with you here in Trenton. And the other thing I should mention, so Travis has been a patron of me and Kickstarter backer and stuff. And uh, because of that, I, I wrote him a jingle for your, uh, your blog and Minecraft server. <laughs> Yeah, so the next time I upload a video on YouTube that has to do with my personal server that I own, uh, it'll have Charlie's theme song in yeah. doing the intro. So that'll be uh, kind of cool. I've not had a theme song for my uh, parkour series yet, so that'll be really cool to do. Yeah. Spin Okay, Charlie, I got a question for you. Is it possible to compose, to write music, to make a song when you don't feel the inspiration? Can you still do it if you don't feel the inspiration? That's the question. Yeah, I, I think. Have. Yeah, I think that right there separates professionals from amateurs in a way, or hobbyists, I should say, because like. When you're a professional in any field, you really have to fight through the non-inspiration to get something out. Um, totally. But, I don't know, maybe I take that back. Like, if, if someone's a hobbyist, too, I mean, they're, they're not always going to feel inspired, but sometimes it's just, like, takes 
the initial, like, sit down, start doing something. Because otherwise, like, maybe you'll never feel inspired just out of the blue. And you really just need to sit down and start it. And then once you get working on it, that's the way to go. I was thinking about this with myself. Like, my main motivation in anything is, like, is there a creative puzzle to solve? Whether that's, like, ooh, I get a challenge. Or, like, ooh, I kind of like this chord progression. Now, what melody would fit with this? Mm. Uh, and so, I think, like, just in general, solving puzzles is really fun for me. And that's, I think, another reason why game design got got stuck in my brain, because it's, like, the ultimate puzzle solving. Because you're creating a puzzle in within a puzzle, I, I guess. Mm. Like, you're trying to trying to balance this game that's already, like, very complex, maybe. Sounds like you have a very craftsman-like mentality, right? Like, oh, here's the yeah. problem. I'm going to craft a solution for it, right? Uh, regardless, uh, like, the, the problem solving is more important than maybe what you're expressing in the given moment. I mean, I, I think they go hand in hand, but you're very much about, like, uh, thinking through in a kind of technical manner, in a programmatic kind of manner. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, I think, why I also am into video editing, because that's totally that kind of, like, puzzle solving. Hmm. I don't do know, what, like what do you think about that? Hmm. Yeah, uh, so do you feel like you're in touch with your intuition, your inner songwriter voice or artist voice? Uh, that's a good question. I think, um, I think not, not lately. I ha I haven't been. Like, it, I don't know. Sometimes I don't, I just don't feel as inspired to express my own emotions. But mm. then the other times I'll, like, start playing something at the piano and then it's, like, just spilled out. So, I just, maybe I just need to figure out, if I if I was going to try and do, like, solo songwriter career, I would I would have to figure out how to, like, get into that mode on a more regular basis. Yeah, that's an impo important skill to have, right? To put yourself into the mental and physiological and, like, psychological states uh, to be open to letting stuff spill out, right? That, like, maybe it doesn't spill out all the time. Maybe the, the well is dry, but sometimes you might hit it, right? And it's uh, having that routine or discipline of showing up time and time again to check that well, to open it up, to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah. How about you? Do you, do you feel like you can get in that self-expression mode? Do you ever feel like you get to that with filmmaking? Or is it kind of just a different artistic exercise? So I share uh, the same quality you mentioned of, like, I'm very into problem solving. Uh, and, like, filmmaking is very much problem solving. Is okay, we're trying to do this. How do we do this? And usually when, you know, I'm given this kind of question, or how do we solve this, like, 
I enjoy that. I, I, I rise to that. I'm like, okay, let's figure this out. Um, and I'm, I've been trying to figure out my personal expression. I don't think I've really found it in filmmaking quite yet. I've kind of maybe touched upon it here or there, but uh, filmmaking in a lot of ways is kind of problem-solving for me in my current place. Um, in, a, in a place uh, for myself that I've found creative self-expression has been in journaling and writing. Uh, and like just like opening up a blank page of the journal and writing stream of consciousness. It was really challenging at first. Like, that was like a year ago when I tried starting this. And it was so challenging. I was just like, what do I write about? What do I say? Um, how do I, you know... And now I can kind of just like open the page and start writing and 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 it's not like anything golden, it's not anything beautiful necessarily, but it's like tapping into that strain of like what I feel is true or what what am I experiencing right now and accepting it as it comes. That's great. Yeah, I've recently been doing a little bit of that myself to try and figure out some some of my own feelings, especially around the recent breakup. Um, mm. And yes, it's really powerful. I don't know. I, have, I haven't done that much writing of my own thoughts over the years. Uh, it's always been either songs or sometimes I'll just like do dream journals of like dreams I have. But that's more just to catalog the weirdness of my dreams. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a real powerful yeah. thing. Even if uh, someone doesn't think they're creative, well, they are creative. Life is about finding creative solutions to daily problems and challenges. And so I think, uh, yeah, writing is a great, easy, cheap, simple way to interact with what's going on inside. Yeah. Well, I guess if you, if you want to tie it all back together, isn't this podcast just my own journal? Journal of the tour? Yeah, definitely. This is <laughs> this is um yeah, understanding the journey, kind of you know reflecting as you go along. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate talking to you in that way because I thought this season. It's got to be more personal, have a more personal touch, because it's a road trip. So I'm I'm on a personal journey here. Listeners can get in on that a little bit. Yeah, that's cool. So with that, I guess let's sign off for now. Good talk. Yeah, good talk. here at Otterbein University with Spencer Stern. Spencer, you're starting your first year here. Yes, I am. You, did you know from the beginning that you wanted to be a music composition major? For the most part, yeah. I thought about going into performance a few times, but I'm not the best violinist or the best pianist, so composition, was, and I've always had a love for composing, so composition was probably a pretty obvious answer. And my end game is to be a conductor, so I thought that was a pretty good road to get there, I guess. Yeah. 
That's cool. I hadn't thought about that as a path. But you'll definitely learn, like, score reading in and out and figure that out as yeah. you're <laughs> composing. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in the score library down in the basement of the library. Cool. So when you were looking around for schools, did you have a lot of schools as options that had composing programs for undergrad? Yeah, I applied to about four schools, and I had one that my heart was really set on, WVU, but uh, the money situation just wasn't there. So uh, my my violin teacher recommended me to this place, and I applied and loved it here, so now I'm here. Cool. So what kind of things are you doing in your first year here as a music composition major? Um, so really, I'm not taking a ton of music classes. I'm taking one intro to music class, which is basically knowing the vocabulary, uh, how to talk like a professional musician. And then I tested out a music theory one and oral skills one. And so I got bumped up to uh, beginning composition, and that's... It's been a test having to write a piece in three days. Normally, I'm used to having you know as much time as I need. So, well, that's that's an intense cycle. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we get we get our assignment on Thursday, and then we perform it. We have to have it turned in by like Monday morning, and then it gets performed on Tuesday, and then we have Tuesday to win to win Tuesday to Thursday morning to revise it, and then Thursday we get another project. And well, every week. Yep, that's. That's way more intense than my <laughs> music yeah. composition major was. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It's it's not hard stuff because the um, the first one was like a rhythm exercise, so we had to write a, a spoken word fugue. So I did um, the lyrics from OxyClean commercials as my <laughs> lyrics for it, and then this past one was a single melody line. So I just wrote a piece for tenor sax, and now this week this week's been pretty. Interesting, actually, because it was an ostinato one. So I tried to not go do like the cliche superhero ostinato. So that's been really challenging not to go to the ostinato that's everyone's heard, like in a Marvel movie yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, because that that showed up a lot when we were talking about it when we got our assignment. Because I mean, as much as I love the Marvel composers, it's really you know string ostinato and then the French horns come in with an eight-bar melody and it. And I kind of wanted to avoid that. So I took a lot of inspiration from... Because my friend Sam and I are doing a piano duet of Venus from the planet. So I took a lot of inspiration from the harps, I guess it is. I think it's in the original orchestration, those chords. And that's kind of what I based mine on. Cool. Are you liking the transition from high school to college? Definitely, definitely. Because um, <clears throat> the area where I came from really wasn't very friendly to, you know, classical composition. Because I grew up in rural West Virginia, so it was all, for lack of a better term, rednecks. So I really had no one to talk about classical composition with, and now I have empteenth amount of people to talk about it with, and I think it's great. Cool. What kind of things are you learning in class that you... I mean, obviously you've had, like, some theory and oral skills training if you passed out of them. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, what kind of new stuff are you learning here? Um, I guess before I came to college, I was so focused on being different than every other composer that I've ever heard that I forgot to focus on, you know, the back-to-basics things. So it's been kind of refreshing because 
we're basically starting from the bottom again. So going back to you know chord progressions and things like that, it's been really interesting how it's affected on um, my composition because I'm working on like a string quartet right now. And like right at the end of my senior year, I was getting like really into avant-garde music. And then over the summer, I heard um, the local symphony premiered Kenneth Fuchs' Piano Concerto. And it, it wasn't tonal tonal. I guess the best way to describe it would be like neo-impressionism. And that kind of brought me back into a more tonal realm. So it's been, I don't know, kind of sort of a refresh button on my compositional style, but I guess that's the best way to describe it. Sure. I feel like classical composition in general doesn't come up in high school. Like a lot of people are in orchestra or band, but I know myself, like, there's only one project really in high school that, like, was a composition type thing. Yeah, and so. I, didn't, I didn't even have that because our music department, I mean, I'm sorry if anyone from home is listening to this, but it was kind of a joke because we had, what, 17, 18 people in our marching band and maybe 20 people in our choir. So. I mean, it's to be expected because everyone's interested in football and mudding and things like that. So, so, so how'd you learn composition on your own? The internet. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there was actually a composer in Wheeling that kind of took me under his wing for a little bit, and you know, he never gave me quote unquote composition lessons, but he was like, check out this book or check out these scores and stuff. So that definitely helped me. Um, and then we had a group of like three or four people around my area that were just, we were all the same age, we were all composers, so just trading notes, I guess. I got introduced to more like non-tonal music like Shostakovich and stuff like that hmm. through that. So the internet and older people and friends and just, you know, just trying, trying to find my way for myself, I guess. Cool. What would you say to people who are thinking about applying for college for the first time? Um, don't come in with a very closed mind because it'll get changed pretty quickly. That's what, that's what I did. I was like, I'm an, I'm an avant-garde composer and tonality is for inbreds and lowlifes. And now I'm like, hey, this is, this is a great chord progression and things like that. So I guess don't, and that and don't take yourself too seriously, I guess. So that and lots of practice. Sure. And I, I feel like looking back um, on my undergraduate music time, I think making connections with all of your music major friends oh, yeah, um, is like huge because well, it sounds like your program is really good about already having them perform your music. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a piece played at the West Fork New Music Festival. So just, you know, the month I've been here, I've had people you know, interested in performing my pieces and things like that. So, yeah, the networking has been, been pretty great. Yeah. And thinking back to when I was a music major, we weren't, like, super encouraged to have our fellow music majors perform our stuff. So, I really? think... Well, what was their... Sorry, I'm kind of switching this. Oh, one. yeah. What, what was their thinking behind it? Um, I don't know. I think it was just, like, there weren't that many composition students in general. And I don't know. I don't know why it didn't really come up. 
Huh. So yeah, I guess if you, you know, if you are in your undergrad music program, and I would just stress that maybe you have to be the one to take initiative to get people to perform your yeah. stuff. And I did have some of that, but I guess when I when I was in college, I was also kind of focused on electronic music too. So yeah, part of me didn't even think to say like, "Hey, do you want to play this piece on piano for me?" And I definitely, I definitely have an interest in like electroacoustic music, but I, I guess I'm not going to take that until either next year or my junior year. So right now, I'm trying to hone my acoustic composition skills right now. Yeah, but electroacoustic. It's something that I really, I really enjoyed your uh, Mayflies piece for string orchestra and electronics. Oh, thanks. That was really interesting, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, well, that was a fun challenge because it was like I had to do something that could be independent of the tempo of the orchestra because I didn't want to have like a click track for the conductor. I mean, I wanted it to end basically at the right time, uh, but I wanted it to just be smooth flowing and yeah. so very slow chord changes. As you probably know with Composer Quest, we have a question chain going from person to person. Yes. Uh, so Ryan Ruff-Smith was the last songwriter I talked to, um, and his question was along the lines of, if you could have a piece of music that you plagiarized from someone else and no one knew what it was, oh. what would that be? Oh. Hmm. Probably Black Angels by George Crumb. That's probably one of my favorite pieces of music ever, and I'm kind of sad that I didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one is crazy. Like, all sorts of weird sounds that... Yeah. I'm actually talking to some of my string player friends, and we might try to play it for next year's collage concert. Oh, cool. That'd be, it'd be, a, lot of, it'd be a challenge, but it'd be fun. How it, many musicians is that for? Just string quartet, electric string quartet, and then they have... I think it's two gongs and, like, crystal glasses, and I think it's crotales. But that may be Song of the Whale. I don't know. There's there's a whole section in the score library of nothing but, like, avant-garde George Crumb scores, and I've tried to study all of them. So do you have a question for the next guest? <laughs> yeah. Um, if you could go back to your undergrad, what would you change, and what would you keep the same and emphasize, I guess? Cool. That's a good question. Thinking about my experience, if I was going to answer that, I guess I kind of answered it went by saying I would want to try to get more of my music performed by people. I think, like, it was good that I picked a large composition thesis project to do. Yeah. Like, well, I did this. What was your thesis project? Um, it was this double album called Mystery of Grey Matters. Oh, yeah. You, I think I think you've talked about that or I've listened to it or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was like a two-year endeavor. Wow. And it was kind of just like me learning how to produce because um, that was another thing that <clears throat> we kind of just had to do on our own was learn the electronic side of it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've kind of... 
I've kind of thought about what I'd like to do for like a final project. I'd like to do a, like a performance piece, like kind of on the setting of a requiem or a mass for like choir and orchestra, but not have it uh, sacred, but have it more like more of a topic on nature, I guess. So it'd be set outside and it'd be like this circle and the musicians would be on the outside in the woods and there'd be like this fire and the, and the listeners just come in and sit down or whatever. And then what I have so far is like the four seasons and then like during spring we would burn like apple wood and winter we'd burn probably like pine, fall would be oak and I'm not sure what summer would be yet. I don't know, that's, that's kind of what I've thought so far, but I'm not sure. That's a really cool idea. So, so like, four movements, and you'd have it performed throughout the year. Yeah. Or all at once, because I don't think anyone wants to sit outside in the middle of winter and listen to music. So You never know. That could be the extreme... Uh, <laughs> the, hard, this, the hardcore classical just, music fans. Just make that the real short movement. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you had a nice bla- uh, blazing fire. Yeah. I don't know. Well, either way, I, I think that's a cool idea. Well, thank you. So, yeah, Spencer, it's been awesome talking to you here. Oh, it's um, been great to be on. I've been a fan of it since, I think, pretty much the beginning. So. Oh, cool. It's been, it's been fun. Do you have a favorite episode in particular? <sighs> the Nathan Elliott episode, I guess. Because mm. I've... Nathan, um, the Universe and Me album is just kind of my go-to... I'm in my room and I need to do math homework. I just put that on and it makes it go a little bit easier. So that and, um, oh, there was one like, the guy who wrote a little breakfast music. I forget his name. But you know who I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah. Rick that was, Sowash. Yeah, that was it, I think. That was a yeah. really good episode. Oh, yeah, that was. That made, made you... Uh, yeah, he just had a real different perspective on classical music. And, like, I guess he's kind of along the lines of what you are talking about, where you you came back to tonal music. Like, he's, like, 100% towards tonal music. And, like, why does music need to be, like, way out there for people to get it? Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. But, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's great to meet you, Spencer. It's great to meet you, too. Um, and your friend is here, too. Um, remind me your name. I'm Sam. Sam? Yep. So you're kind of curious about starting a podcast, huh? Yes, I am. What would the podcast be about? That'd be a hard question. Uh, perhaps for me, I'd love to do like a podcast about music for the road. I love cars, and I love driving, and I also have a big passion for music. And so I'm thinking a podcast about perhaps different kinds of road trips and music that would be appropriate for those and kind of music-fitting themes in different time eras and different kinds of cars. And cool. I think that would be an interesting idea to play with. Yeah. Get, Have, would it be like a commentary podcast, kind of? Like you, you play a song and then... Or how do you think you would structure it? That's the difficult thing. I'm thinking um, I'd want to... Um, perhaps break it up into two sections one I'd, I'd probably open the show with the song I want to discuss that week or the type of music I want to discuss 
then I'd probably give a review or an overview of the car or the area or like a particular road that I want to talk about and kind of I'd want to with perhaps a guest um, kind of intertwine the two of them and kind of connect the two of them kind of bringing it full circle near the end of the podcast cool have you heard of the show um, the Jerry Seinfeld comedians in cars yes yeah. comedians in cars getting, <laughs> getting coffee, coffee or something yeah, yeah. I, I think it's great having like a a hook to the show like this weird um, thing going yeah you gotta try something a little different and I think it's kind of important that you do something that you genuinely love you don't jump on a trend you don't jump on you know what's popular what's or making something different that somebody else has already done you think okay what are my interests and how do I best kind of combine them to create something that I believe other people would enjoy listening to and hearing yeah and that's I suppose the challenge of creating a good podcast yeah well, do you have any idea what you might call this podcast if you get it going? Uh, I can't. I've thought of a couple titles and they're all just genuinely awful. Songs <laughs> of the Open Road, something awful like that. Um, but. Well, if you ever, if you ever put it up, uh, maybe you should send me the link and then I'll, Absolutely. I'll promote it to Composer Quest. Sounds great. <laughs> cool. Thanks, both of you guys. No problem. Yeah. yeah. Now uh, we're going to go get some ice cream. Yeah, we are. <laughs> well, we got some ice cream, guys. Right? And uh, now we walked around campus. What was that? Um, composer's house we saw the Hanby house Hanby. what did he do again for... he wrote up on the housetop darling Nellie Gray okay and your campus song right or... um, I think we well, think we're debating on that one <laughs> okay so Spencer now... you you also revealed to me uh, that your potential source of income as a composer could be Indie indie wrestling theme song composing. <laughs> my uh, my backup plan for music is just to be a pro wrestler. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, one of the most competitive fields. But uh, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. And Jim Johnston writes all the theme music for all the wrestlers. And I figure that'd be a pretty sweet job. So yeah, what what's the characteristics of a good one? It really just depends on the wrestler's character. Like, you can't write a, a menacing, you know, for like a Hulk Hogan. You just kind of have to watch the wrestler. If he's a good guy or a bad guy, you know. I guess that'd be the way I'd approach it anyway. Yeah. If you had a wrestling theme, what would that be? Oh, like any song? Well, no, if you were going to make your own. Ooh, hmm. Probably... A strong, like, E or A pedal with, like, a power chord for guitar and then, like, a fret-tapping melody over it. Nice. I don't know. Well, we could that we could make that your song challenge. <sighs> uh, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Look what I've done. <laughs> you have too many composition projects on your plate. Yeah, you? I'll just, I'll send you one of my, one of my old compositions. Okay. And I'll send just you pick, pick the one that... Uh, reminds you the most of what could be your 
wrestler. Ooh, I write theme, so. I write a lot of romantic stuff, so that might be. <laughs> I'll, <see. laughs> I'll figure something out. Okay, I'll sounds, something sounds out. good. Well, that does it for this episode of Composer Quest. Um, you can always go to composerquest.com to hear all the episodes. And this one was sponsored by Jacob Haller, my Kickstarter backer. Now, we'll just leave you with one of Spencer's compositions. <laughs>